0: Good morning, church. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. All right. Hanging in there? Heard there's a flu bug going around, so I'm praying right now that Father uh, save us from whatever bug might be going around. We're continuing our study through First Peter. So, if you have your Bibles open with me to that passage, our friend Nathan read First Peter chapter four, verses one through eleven. The focus of the passage this morning is living for God. Now, if someone were to come up to you and ask you, what do you live for, or who do you live for, what would be your answer? Okay. If someone asked you, what's the purpose of your life, what would you say? What's your mission in life? What is What is it, if you lost it, would just wreck you and devastate you? I think as, as Christians, it, it we know the answer is we live for God, but functionally, we look at our bank accounts, we look at our calendars, we look at the way we spend our time, who do we live for? What do we live for? Uh, when I was growing up, my heart was set on self and glory. I wanted to become a professional baseball player, I tried everything I could, I, I Threw the ball, the tennis ball against the house for countless hours, developing arm strength. I was all about baseball. I wanted to be a major league pitcher on Safego Field. I wanted the, the fame. I wanted the money. I wanted everything that came with that life the prestige, the success. But it became evident to me in high school when my fastball topped out at low 80s that that probably wasn't in the future. So I thought, how else can I get glory and honor and money? Become a doctor. Make a lot of money. Yet, when uh, the gospel was preached to me at age 15, my youth pastor got up at a summer camp and preached the gospel to me, my identity that was set upon self, that was set upon uh, passions and goals that were all about living for myself, got flipped on its head. And when Jesus saved me, he gave me a new heart. He regenerated me. He gave me a new passion for God. I finally wanted to be in his word. I wanted to gather with his church. I was called to God. doesn't mean I don't wrestle with selfishness and sinfulness and fall back into that pattern. I do it all the time. In fact, I tempted to do that every Sunday as I preach. But the underlying passion and goal of my life now is to, is to live for God, to glorify God. And according to the Christian faith and what Peter says in chapter 4, specifically verse 2, the goal of the life of a Christian is to live for God and for his glory. We are no longer to be living for human passions. The, Peter talked about earlier in 1 Peter that we're no longer to live in our former ignorance. Christ died so that we would die to sin and, and live to righteousness. That's, that's why we were saved, to live for righteousness. So the mission, the mission of a Christian is that in everything, God would be glorified. goal in your life is to live for God. We know this from the scripture because God's ultimate purpose and mission of God is to glorify God. That's why he does everything, for his own glory, for the display and preservation of his glory. So when God calls someone to himself, he's calling them to join him in his mission to glorify himself. Does that make sense? When we are called to God, we are given a new passion, a new vision, a new trajectory. We are now living for God, living for his glory. Everything in our life, therefore, is to join God in pursuing, enjoying, displaying the glory of God above all things. And This is where we're going this morning. Live for God. The glory of God is a way of talking about his manifest beauty and supreme worth, his perfection. So when we're talking about the glory of God, it's doing everything for uh, making God known as he really is, the supreme object, the greatest uh, treasure, the the most supreme being that there is, living in a way that reflects that reality. So that's where we're going this morning. No longer live for yourself, live for God. So like I said before, if you have your Bibles, open with me to that passage, chapter 4. All the way up to this point, we've seen Peter develop this theme that we've looked at, which is being set apart. Uh, right from the beginning of the letter, Peter calls us that tells us that we've been called apart. We've been called by God to a living inheritance. We've been sealed by God. Uh, we are called by God who is holy. He is utterly unique. So we are to live utterly unique, set apart from our culture and society. We are to be uh, filled by different things. We're to long for different things. That's the pure spiritual milk, the word of God. That's what we Want to feast and live on. We're to speak in set apart ways. We don't lie and deceive and envy and slander others. We talk in a way that is proclaiming the excellencies of Him. And we live in a way that our lives are honorable. They're living in a way that we're reflecting the holiness of God so that when others see our holy life, they glorify our Father who is in heaven. We are to view and honor and submit to authority in set apart ways, knowing that God our Father is the one who is above all things. He is the one who is over all authorities. We are to view our marriages as set-apart ways. The way husbands and wives react to each other and interact with one another is to be set-apart. And this is all stemming from, I think, one of the foundational points and keys of the letter, which is reminding Christians that in everything we do, we do this for the glory of God. And we do this for others as well. So our obedience is not only for God, but it's also that others would see our obedience and join us in glorifying God. So everything in our life is worship and mission. Amen? We praise God with our words and we call others to God by the way that we live. We live for God. And there's, there's five main points from the text in your outline this morning that I've, I've made in, in the outline if you want to follow along with me. The first is, we live for God by living armed with Christ-like thinking. Peter picks up where he left off in the end of chapter 3 by saying, Since, therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, last week, as we saw in chapter three, especially at the end of chapter three, there is some confusing wording and phrases and, and things that were going down in that text. And Peter's kind of that's still kind of trickling off here. There's some confusing things going on in the beginning of chapter 4. What does it mean that if you suffer in the flesh, you've ceased from sin? Certainly, it doesn't mean that when you suffer, you stop sinning. That goes against what the Bible says. We're no longer perfect. We're, we're saved, but we're still sinners. We still sin. So what does he mean by saying, uh, if you've, ceased, you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin? And in my studies, uh, I, there seems to be two things that Peter may mean. Number one, it means that it could mean that since Christ suffered in the flesh or died, meaning that since Christ died in the flesh, he suffered in the flesh, Christ's sufferings result in a death to sin, uh, my death to the flesh. So we're, we're dead to the power of sin. We're dead to uh, being enslaved to sin. We see this in 1 Peter 3:18. Peter says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That's one of the verses why that, that view might be in mind here. A second verse to, to support that view is 1 Peter 2.24, where he says he bore our sins in his body that on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that's one thing Peter might mean here when he's talking about suffering in the flesh but ceasing from sin. Something else he might mean is that when, we're being, when we are being willing to suffer, We're suffering from judgment from unbelievers. We're being willing to suffer malice, slander, shame. It demonstrates or proves as believers that we are done with sin. We are finished with it. In the ESV study Bible, I think it says the the nerve center of sin has been severed in our life when we're willing to suffer for Christ. So those are two things that it could mean. Whatever it means exactly, the message of the scriptures is clear that we'll never fully and finally be done with sin until we die. Or until Jesus comes again. But when we've died with Christ, we've been killed to the power of sin over our life. We're no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer ruled and dominated by sin. And Peter says, with this understanding, arm yourself with Christ-like thinking. Well, then we have to ask the question, what's Christ-like thinking? How did Christ think about these things when he suffered? And flipping your Bibles with me to 1 Peter 2, 21. This was in the passage that Will preached a couple weeks ago. 1 Peter 2:21 says this: For to you for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This is this is I think what Peter's getting at with Christ's life thinking verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So I take this to mean to be armed with Christ-like thinking is to be resolved not to sin in the midst of suffering. It's to be resolved that like Christ, when he was reviled, when people spoke poorly of him, they slandered him, He did not threaten or return evil for evil. He continually entrusted himself to God who was the future and final judge. That's what I'm taking be armed with Christ-like thinking to mean. Continue to entrust yourself to the sovereignty of God and trust yourself to the, the justice of God as the final judge. And when I thought about the word armed, I couldn't help but think about an alarm and how you arm an alarm. Now, when an alarm is armed, what does it do? It goes off when someone gets into the house that shouldn't be there, right? It makes a loud noise when the, when the house is armed. Nothing's going to get in there without a noise happening, something being triggered that's going to signal to the homeowner, whoever it is, hey, someone's in your house that shouldn't be there, or maybe it's an accident. And when we think about being armed with Christ-like thinking, I think it's helpful to think about our minds like that house with an alarm that as we are armed with Christ-like thinking, other thoughts about how we should respond to suffering, oh, they they slandered you, you you slander in return. These thoughts that come to mind, they're they're held captive. Thoughts that are not Christ do not enter into our thoughts. We don't think upon those and resolve and and commit to those. Does that make sense? Let's arm ourselves with Christ-like thinking. Peter picks up on this in verse 4 and 6 says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Debauchery means wild living. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So again, just as Jesus was obedient to God through horrible suffering, even to the point of death, Peter says, arm yourselves with Christ-like thinking. Commit yourself to honoring God in the midst of suffering. Know that although the world may condemn you, the world is not the final judge. God is. It says in verse six, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And looking at the context, what this means is those who are dead means that those who are now dead. So those who the gospel was preached to and have since died. Even if your suffering goes all the way to the point of being killed, the world judge you, judges you and you're killed. Take heart because God, the world is not your final judge. Even by human standards, according to human ways, according to human standards, Christians live in the Spirit. Even though the world may judge you, may kill you, may suffer and die, it looks like, according to the flesh, it's over. You've been silenced, you were put to shame. You live according to the Spirit. So, Peter is telling us to take heart, be encouraged. God is the judge of all people. He will bring justice. He will bring vengeance. God will vindicate those who are faithful to the end. So keep trusting yourself to God. Stay faithful to God. Hope in God. Even when you stop doing what the Gentiles do, what your former self, your former culture, your former way of life, when you stop doing what you used to do and the people that you hung out with make fun of you, they slander you, they're surprised that you don't continue to do what they do, keep trusting yourself to God. He will Vindicate you. He ultimately is the judge. So, number one, we are to live with Christ like thinking away, an understanding, a perspective, a purpose, resolved not to sin when others sin against you. Trusting in God's justice, committing yourself to self denial. I think the second principle we see in this passage is that we are to live self controlled and sober minded in prayer. Peter calls his readers self control and being sober minded. And look at the references to time throughout the passage. See there in verse 2, it says, for the rest of time. In verse 3, for the time is past. Verse 7, for the end of all things is at hand. Peter seems to be arguing that in light of eternity, the temporary, the fleeting nature of this world, the last times that we're in, the end times, in between Jesus' resurrection and, and future coming, be diligent, urgent, careful self-controlled, intentional, sober-minded in the way that you live. This is in verse 2, for to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed, suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. And then Peter lists out a bunch of things that they do. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. All of these things are rooted in a heart that's set on the self. All these things are selfish. All these things are inordinate desires, selfish crazing cravings that displace proper affections for God. And when we look at verse 3 and 4 about these human passions, when Peter says, don't live for human passions, live for the will of God, it doesn't mean that we're to live with no passion at all. It doesn't mean that we live with a sense of gloomy, doomy, uh, living for God out of this obligation and duty, I can't have any fun. Can't have any passion. These human passions are not passions that humans feel. They are passions that originate in humanity. Does that make sense? So uh, they originate in humanity. They are human in the sense they they have no reference to God or his word. So no longer live for human passions as living for the will of God. It means don't have passions that originate in man for self, for uh, sexual desires that are outside of the will of God. Live for the will of God. And and I take that to mean be passionate about God. Have God-centered passions. Don't have human passions. Have God-centered passions. Don't be stoic. Don't live grumpy. Don't have a a duty-filled, grumpy life. Be satisfied in God. Delight yourself in God. Have passions about God. Not in drink or sex or parties or selfishness. Be passionate about God. He's my pleasure. And Peter says, the reason we do this is because the time has passed for living in sin. The time that has passed suffices. This means that the time that has passed is enough or sufficient. In other words, Peter's saying, you've had enough time to live in sin. Whatever time that was, whether you were saved at age four or you're saved at age 80, the time that was passed That's enough. You've sinned enough. You've been set on yourself enough. You've been controlled by human passions enough. Now live for God. You've sinned enough already. Live the rest of the time that you do have, however long that is, a day, a week, a year, until we're 70, 80. I don't know how long that's gonna be, but for the rest of the time that you have, live for God. In light of eternity, with the rest of the time that you do have, Live for him. This is in verse seven. For the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Because Jesus could come back at any time or he could call us back at any time. Be alert, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, steward, think about, commit, maximize, leverage, whatever time you have left for the glory of God. It has eternal consequences, this temporary time that we have left. Therefore, maximize it. Steward it well. Be faithful. The time that you have is a gift. Don't spend it on yourself. Use it for God. And self-controlled means live wisely. Think wisely about what you do, about what you feel. Another way of translating this word is to be alert. Sober-minded means not influenced by sin or ungodly passions or behavior, not influenced by drugs, alcohol, pleasure, entertainment, Food, Peter's saying, you need the full use of your mind to live in this set apart way in the midst of a sinful world that we live in. You need the full capacity to think deeply, to think hard about the way that you live. You don't want to waste the time that you have left on fleeting things. If you're not alert, if you're not sober minded, this has devastating effects. And Peter says, this is for the sake of your prayers. It's interesting to, me to be, it's interesting to me that Peter didn't just say, pray, right? In light of eternity, in light of the small time that we have left on earth, pray. He doesn't say that. He, he gets behind the heart, behind the mindset of prayer, because there's a way of thinking about prayer that views it as pointless. So don't have that. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. You get sucked into the cares of the world and human passions and you get lulled to sleep by the desires and the cares of the world. If your heart becomes complacent, you're not going to pray. If you don't have a sense of urgency and and, and alertness about the rest of the time that you have, you're not going to pray. You're going to view it as pointless. Peter knows that prayer is vital to living set apart. Prayer is vital to living for the glory of God. He knows that in the end times, the world that is so difficult, everything around us will keep calling us back to self, calling an assault upon the gospel. It's an attack on our faith. Therefore, we need to pray. We need to be alert. Have the heart and mindset that realize the urgent condition that we're in. And don't view prayer as pointless. Don't have a mindset that views prayer as optional. Meh. Have the mindset of alertness and sobriety that prays. I think, if we're honest, if I take a good look at my heart, oftentimes I don't pray. I don't think I need to. I get caught up in the cares of the world. I get caught up in myself, my schedule, my selfishness. I get caught up in living in the temporary, not kind of the urgent, whatever time I have left, maximizing that for the glory of God. I don't pray. If we've been lulled to sleep by the comforts of the world, if we've been wasting our lives, dulling our minds, we won't pray, I don't think. We won't have an urgency to fall down on our faces and cry out to God. I was reminded of this, of this week, thinking about uh, my two-year-old daughter, Addison. Addison loves watching television. She loves watching the movie Moana. And if you if we put Moana on the iPad and set it before her, she is just lost to the world. She doesn't ever call out to me doesn't cry, doesn't say, hey, Dad, look at this. She is just zoned in on her show. Addison doesn't cry out to me when she's comfortable, when she has everything that she wants, when she's zoned in to her television, to her entertainment. She does cry out to me when she's in trouble. When she she really needs me, something has happened, then she calls out to me and I'm like Addison, I think we can be like Addison, lulled to sleep, brains dead by the things of this world. We don't cry out to God. We don't need him. We don't realize the difficult danger, the necessity of God, the deception that we can believe from the world, the complacency that so often rises up in our hearts. We won't pray. Peter's saying, have the mindset of true spiritual reality. Think on and realize the time is short. Live for the glory of God. Be self-controlled and sober-minded, living a life of prayer. So be armed with Christ-like thinking. Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And number three, we live for God by living in earnest love for one another and showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Remember, in this in this time, they, the Christians were experiencing ostracization. Peter kind of knew that future persecution might be coming from from the Roman Empire, from the governing authorities. It might it was about to become very dangerous to be a Christian in this time. And I think Peter knows that in this situation, in this circumstances, in the stress. It can be very easy to be short. To not love one another well. In the midst of being slandered and reviled, stress increases. And Peter says, above all, love one another earnestly. Like, have a real love. That's what earnest means. Don't be fake and genuine or trivial. Have a surface level. Don't be insincere and fake. Be, have an earnest love for one another. And he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, again, in this way, I think Peter might have two things in mind when he says this. Number one, love brings great patience and forgiveness. It believes the best and endures with fellow believers, so it, it brings unity. That's what love covers a multitude of sins. Get this from 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. Paul says to the church in Corinth, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love is patient. doesn't keep a record of wrong. Other translations say it it, it keeps, uh, other translations say when that phrase uh, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, we'll translate it as keep no record of wrongs. So it bears all things. So in this way, love covers a multitude of sins. Love causes people to forgive and cover sins, and this is vital. You know this, if you've been with the church any length of time in your life, the church is full of sinful people. We're going to hurt each other. We are, yes, no no longer slaves of sin, but it doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean we're not going to hurt each other and say things the wrong way and And hurt one another intentionally, rub and unintentionally rub one another the wrong way, right? If I haven't already, I'm going to say something that's going to rub you the wrong way. I'm not arrogant enough to say that that my preaching is perfect and you're going to hear everything that I say perfectly from a perfect heart because I have a perfect heart and you have a perfect heart, and everything's perfect. My heart might be in the wrong place, your heart might be in the wrong place, and we might offend each other and hurt each other not because I'm trying to, because we're sinless. And when there's a church that's committed to love one another, it covers a multitude of sins, bears all things. If we're not committed to love one another earnestly, when hurts and conflicts and wrongs come up, it's going to blow it up. It's going to blow up community. It's going to blow up unity. It's going to destroy the church. It's going to end churches. So healthy, strong churches, I think, are ones that love one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. A church of love will frequently overlook offenses and readily forgive one another. The second thing Peter may mean by covering a multitude of sins is a sense that love brings others back from sins. I get this from James five nineteen through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So love in the sense has a restorative nature. When you see someone wandering in this difficult times of suffering and people are prone to lose the faith, people are prone to want the approval of man over the approval of God. Love covers a multitude of sins. We go after those who are wandering. We want to call them back true faith and true love. And whether Peter is referring to one of these or the other or both of them, the point is love one another earnestly. Forgive one another and show hospitality. Notice the key word there, without grumbling. Now, again, when we look at the historical context of this command, it may have been the fact that Christians were being rejected from their families. They were getting kicked out of their households, so there, there was homelessness that was happening. People were being removed from their home. Peter says that to the elect exiles and the dispersion, those had been removed from their homes, and they have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So in light of this, if whether there was a Christian who was homeless, maybe a missionary that was coming through town, open up your home and have them into your home. Be hospitable to one another. Christians were to show hospitality and open up their homes because the other option, which was staying at an inn, was dangerous. They were not pleasant. It was rough. So regardless if it was a traveling Christian, a missionary, a homeless Christian, the point is open up your home because the word hospitable means love of stranger, love for those who are not in your household, a heart for those who are outside. When you have hospitality, you love someone outside your home and you want them to be welcome into your home. And even if this need might be great and you're showing hospitality out of duty, don't grumble. Do it without grumbling. Don't complain when you're inconvenienced by someone in your house. Whether you're giving them a meal, you're giving them a place to rest, you're giving them a bed to sleep on. You're to welcome your brothers and sisters in your home because when you welcome your brothers and sisters, Jesus said, it's like you're welcoming me. Now, how in the world can we do this? show hospitality, and show love for one another. I don't think it comes from just white knuckling because that oftentimes leads to complaining. The heart behind this is having a heart like Jesus. When we think about the gospel, when we come back to Jesus, we realize that Jesus was so inconvenienced to welcome us into his family. Jesus left glory and splendor sitting at the the right hand of the Father, Yet he came to earth in a helpless baby. He he took the lowest of the low. He was a homeless man who was beaten and mocked and ridiculed on behalf of us. When we realize all that Jesus experienced to welcome us into his family, into his home, we, we will do the same when we think about the love that Jesus had for us that covered a multitude of our sins by bearing our sins in his body on the tree, when we think about that, we drive that truth into our heart, we will become loving people. I think it's, it's true that the way that you love one another, the, the quickness that you are to open up your home is a reflection of the understanding and the depth that the gospel has gripped your heart. And that's what I think. Might be, I might be wrong on, wrong on that. Are we slow to open up our homes? I don't want, I don't want people into my house. I don't want to be inconvenienced by having people over. That means providing meals. That, that's more money. I have more cleanup. Do we think about and realize all that Jesus did for us to welcome us into His realm. Because I think if we really believe that, our doors will be wide open. We'd be the most welcoming, hospitable, loving people you'd ever met. So, number one, we're to live armed. We're to live self-controlled. We're to live in earnest love and hospitable. Number four, we're to live in service towards one another with our varied gifts. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Peter most likely is referring to spiritual gifts here. And Peter is saying that if you are a Christian, you have received a spiritual gift. Everyone, everyone in this room, if you are a believer, you have received a spiritual gift. How many would say, you know, it for a shadow of a doubt, what that is? And you use, you use it to serve others. No hands? We've got a lot of work to do. Let's just take a break and get in the circle here. The Bible is clear that in the new birth, according to God's great mercy, he causes us to be born again. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. We might be given one. We might be given two. Others of us who are awesome and spiritual elites <laughs> might be given three or four. In all seriousness, everyone has a spiritual gift. These gifts that are given through the Spirit. And the purpose of these gifts are gift, but for certain at least one. The purpose is that they're used to serve others, to love others, to build up the body. Spiritual gifts are gifts that God gives through the Spirit for godly purpose, for service, for edification, for encouragement, for building up. So every believer is to be faithful and wise and useful of these gifts. They're to be a good steward or manager as they receive these gifts to use it for others. They're to be good supervisors of the gift that they've been given. Now if I can be practical here, I don't think the best way to find your spiritual gift is by taking an online test. (laughs) The best way to find your spiritual gift is to Commit to a church and live life with them in community, life on life. The gifts will be revealed. You'll, they'll be affirmed by others. Some of these gifts, uh, I don't think the scriptures list an exhaustive list of these gifts. Uh, if you'd like to do fr- further study, uh, there's gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Paul says to the church in Corinth, again, 1 Corinthians 12, there are a variety of gifts with the same spirit. There are a variety of service but the same Lord. The same God empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here's another reference to everyone gets a spiritual gift. For to one is given the gift of utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, uh, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, variety of tongues, interpretation of tongues. All are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. So, again, we see everyone gets a gift. The point is building up the body. Romans 12 also lists other gifts. Paul says to the church in Rome, for by grace given to me, I I say, everyone everyone among you should not think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we all, though many have one body in Christ, are individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are some examples of some gifts that might be present, that the Spirit might have been given you. And again, I don't think the best way to find these is by taking a test. We can't say, ooh, Teaching. I really want that one. So I'm going to teach. I'm going to appoint myself as a teacher and I'm just going to start teaching. I think this has been a huge problem in the church in America. Man, some guy gets called and says, I, I feel called to teach. And he teaches and no one understands. Man, you're not called to teach, right? I feel called to preach. You preach and people are not encouraged. People say, that guy's not called to preach. You're not called to preach. The church affirms these gifts. You say, ooh, leadership. I really want to be a leader. So I'm always going to assert myself. Say, hey, guys, follow me. I'm always going to get people to follow me so I can prove to myself that I'm this leader that I want to be. Maybe I'll even say I'm called to be a leader. Because if I say calling, certainly no one can disagree with me. Right? Wrong. Leadership is a gift. That as you function and live in the body... The church will see, this guy's a leader. As you're in the body and you teach, this guy's a teacher. I've seen this in in my own gospel community. You see those who are shepherding and those who have encouragement gifts and those who have teaching gifts and those who have gifts of faith. It's awesome. The best way to find your gift is to live uh, in community. And and The context for us as the mountain church is, is gospel communities. This is where where ministry, life, life in community, life on life happens in gospel community, right? Because we gather on Sundays and I love this time. It's encouraging. We sing together. The word is preached. But how many gifts are exercised on a Sunday morning? Can all of you exercise your gifts? It happens in community, in life. when We're together in smaller groups. These are where gifts are developed and seen and affirmed. This to me seems to be the best way we can identify our gifts by being transparent and committed, by not forsaking meeting together, by people getting to know who you are and you getting to know others. So if you're here this morning and confused, you don't know what your gift is, you, you're thinking, man, I," Daniel says I have one, the Bible says I have one, I don't really know what that is. Let me encourage you to, to commit to your gospel community and ask those around you. If you're not committed to a gospel community, I think you're missing out on a great joy and beauty of being with church and in committed relationships. Join a gospel community. And as we live, these gifts will re- be revealed over time. Going back to what I said earlier, this, uh, many of you guys know Pastor Rob, who was a, a mentor of mine, a leader of mine. He always would say that uh, if you think you're a leader and no one's following you, you're just taking a walk. So I don't think it's wrong for us to aspire to certain gifts, to long for certain gifts. But let us not say, I want to be a teacher, so I'm going to impose, I'm going to just believe that I have that gift, and I'm going to act like I have it. Or I believe that I have a, a preaching gift, a leading gift, whatever the gift may be. Join in community, humbly engage others, let the church call them out, encourage you, identify, confirm these gifts as they're being built up and as the group is being blessed by your gift. Does that make sense? That's why I think leaders are, should be developed from within. Again, if you have further questions about spiritual gifts, want to know more, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. But uh, number four, we're to live in service towards one another with our varied gifts. Lastly, the final principle I want to look at from the text is number five, we're to live for the glory of God by speaking from God's word and serving in God's strength. Verse 11 is one of my favorite verses in this passage. It says, it's because there's so much God in it. It's like so God-saturated, so God-centered. He says, whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves and the one who gives strength by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So these oracles of God, the strength of God is that in everything God is glorified. And Peter seems to generally divide these two gifts in, in two general ways, serving and speaking gifts. It says those who speak, those who teach, the, the, the prophets, the preachers, the leaders, the encouragers, the one who exhorts, speak oracles of God. What I think that means is collections and sayings of God, what we have today in our 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So those who speak, speak the oracles of God. They're not consumed with their own thoughts, their own opinions. They're not all about making my words known. They want to speak God's words. They want God's words to be known. They know that my words are not what's most important. God's words are most important. want to speak the word of God. Similarly, if you serve, don't serve in your own power. Serve in the strength that God provides. So whether you speak or you serve, the goal of this is God gets the glory. So serve in a way, speak in a way where God gets the glory. The question we have to ask ourselves is, when I speak and when I serve, do I do so in a way that God gets the glory? But Peter gives us a reason for this right after that dash. In order that God gets the glory. Because if you speak your own words and you serve out of your own strength, who might get the glory? You. That's bad. That's not what we want. We want God to get the glory. We want God to be honored. We want God to be magnified and glorified. So do my spiritual gifts glorify myself or God? What's your heart behind exercising and utilizing your spiritual gift? Do others glorify God when I use my spiritual gift? This should be the aim This should be our aim, both. God's getting glorified. I'm serving in a way that God's glorified. Others are seeing that and glorifying God as I use my gift. That takes real intentionality. And I wanted to provide a practical example of this, uh, just using myself and, and those who preach and teach. So give us some, some words, provide some coaching on how we can do this practically. And I'll use preaching as an example. Right? So Will or Nathan or myself, when we preach, I don't think it's helpful to say, wow, Will, man, that was awesome. You're so good. That might be true. And I, I realize the heart behind it. But I think what we should tell Will when he preaches or whoever preaches is, Will, I'm so thankful to God for you. Thank you for using your gifts that he's given you to teach us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's way different. I can say this true about myself. One of the most encouraging things that you could say to me right after a sermon is not, wow, Daniel, great sermon. Really enjoyed it. I have a big enough head already. My pride is deadly and dangerous enough. I don't want to be puffed up. Again, I realize that the heart behind it might be good, but a different way of expressing it, which I'd like to present to us this morning, is I would encourage you all to think about this, regardless of who you're saying to, that when someone blesses you with their gift, you tell them that you were able to glorify God because of it. So you would say, Daniel, I'm thankful to God for you. I'm grateful that God has given you this gift, and I saw God's grace more deeply. I experienced it in a new way. You you brought to light something that I didn't see before, and it led me to glorify God. I I would ask you that—that is how you might respond or critique a sermon. Encourage me, not Daniel. Best sermon ever heard, and because I know that's not true. Wow, Daniel, great sermon. Then you shake my hand and leave the door. I, and real encouragement to me is, Daniel, I glorified God because of you exercising your gift. Amen? Amen? So whether we lead, whether we encourage, whether we have a gift of service, this is, I think, the way that we should respond. Because you exercised your gift, God was glorified. I'm glorifying God because of it. So let's use this language when we're affirming and encouraging one another's spiritual gifts. The aim, the purpose. We're affirming and encouraging that goal. We want to live for God. We want God to be glorified. That's the reason that we do all things. And it seems like Peter gets so excited, so passionate about talking about this, that God might be glorified as people speak and people serve, that he just busts out and prays himself. Like he turns us into a doxology. He breaks out into praise. The culmination of this passage is the last in verse 11 says whether you speak whether you serve this is all God is supplying it you're you're speaking of God and in order that as you do this God's getting glory through Jesus Christ to him be glory and honor and dominion forever amen he just ends it right there I'm getting so excited about people using their gifts for the glory of God that I'm going to praise God because of it that's sweet that should be our response, right? As we, as we gather together and on Sunday morning, as we gather in gospel community, people are using their gifts for one another. They're encouraging and blessing one another. God's glorified. So I pray as we finish this passage this morning, we would do the same thing that Peter is doing in this moment, that we would say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's be armed with Christ-like thinking. Let's be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of prayer. Let's love one another earnestly and show hospitality to one another without complaining. Let's live in service towards one another with our varied gifts and let's live for the glory of God by speaking from God's word and serving in God's strength. So that in all things, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.